welcome to episode 85 of the Comfort Mug Podcast. My guest today is the two-time Grammy-winning author, journalist, and so much more, Bob Mayer. In 2016, Bob published a book called Trouble Boys, which is a must-read biography of the band The Replacements. And in recent years, he's done a lot of work helping them with reissues that are deluxe versions with all these extras. And most recently, they announced Tim Let It Bleed edition, which features an all-new mix by Ed Stasium that really just brings a new life to the record, as well as so many unreleased things, some Alex Chilton uh, produced recordings, a live recording, so many goodies. I'm very excited to chat with him about this record. That record in particular means a lot to me. It was the record that I discovered the replacements through and probably the one that resonates the most with me. I think you guys are going to enjoy this record and I think you're going to enjoy this episode as well. Thanks for hanging out. This is episode 85 with Bob Mayer. Um, so everything's okay levels wise sounds all right yeah it sounds great to me i can hear you clear as day good well um bob there's so much that i want to pick your brain about i mean i you know you've just been you've had your hands in the pot on so many projects that appeal to me um i figured maybe we'd start by talking about the newest project the tim let it bleed edition um and maybe kind of work our way backwards if if that works for you sure absolutely well I got to say, uh, of all the, the new, um, newly repackaged and kind of deluxe, et cetera, replacements things going on, I have been very much so looking forward to a Tim-centric release. That's the record that I discovered the band on and kind of will always have a bit of a special place for me. Um, how long has this project in particular been in the works? Well, I mean, this whole series of replacements reissues that we've done um, for Rhino and Warner, really kind of the idea began towards the end of when the band was reunited from 2013 to 2015. 2015, I went out to Minneapolis and met with Paul and Tommy and their management. And, you know, kind of I was still the book, my book, Trouble Boys, uh, my biography of the replacement hadn't come out yet, but I'd spent a bunch of years researching it. And one of the things that I did as part of that research was kind of go through the audio archives, both of what was on uh, Twin Tone, their original label, their indie label uh, for their first, first four albums, and then also Warner Brothers. And I realized there's a lot of great stuff here that hadn't even had, either hadn't been heard, hadn't been put out, or that there was material there that could be packaged in a way, you know, that uh, main albums that could be repackaged with bonus material, live stuff that would really make sense. So I kind of drew up a, a plan or an outline of, of things to do. And, and as we started the series with a uh, live album that had been in the can from 1986, called the, which we ended up calling Live at Maxwell's, uh, for sale, Live at Maxwell's. Um, and that kind of got the ball rolling. That did really well. And so uh, we put that out in 2017. And off the back of that and the success of that, we, we were able to get a little bit more ambitious. And the first thing, you know, deluxe box set we did, which was in line with this Tim one, was a kind of reimagined version of Don't Tell a Soul with a new mix the really the mix that the completed by the album's original producer matt wallace and then you know subsequently we've done we've done a couple other things uh you know a deluxe edition of please to meet me deluxe edition 
edition of uh, their first album. Sorry, I forgot to take out the trash. So Tim was one of the ones because like for you, it's probably my favorite record and the one that means the most to me. It was one of the ones that we really wanted to uh, to tackle. And we knew that a remix, I think, would be the kind of central to that. Um, but, you know, as we've done this series, we've kind of bounced around a little bit like the Dylan series. We haven't wanted to go chronologically. At first, we went just to, with the live album because that was in the can and we knew it would probably do well and set us up for su success on these other projects. And so um, but Tim was there from the outset. So, I mean, it's been in my mind, it's been in the plan since 20, you know, 15, 2016, when we started this whole thing. And really, you know, for me, um, the desire to hear it and hear the hear the record in a new way. It's probably been there since I first heard it, you know, whatever, 30 some years ago. Well, I'm glad you're doing it, man. And I, I must say like the way that you're going about each of these, these reissues has been so interesting. And I feel like it, they're always just like gifts that keep giving, you know, like you could easily throw in a few bonus tracks and people would be plenty excited enough, but you do so much more than that. And I feel like the fact that almost every one of them has had either an accompanying live record or at least a lot of bonus material that is live right. or unreleased in some way. Like, I mean, of course the for sale live at Maxwell's incredible album. I mean, it's in my, for my money, one of the greatest live albums out there, but then in Concerated, <laughs> I feel like I, I never really had like a great feel for live replacements, slim era. Um, right. And it is so fucking good, man. Like I feel yeah. like it, it is they're like two sides of the same coin, you know, like right. they you get it's like the best snapshot of a Bob era, best snapshot of a slim era. So I feel like you're just you guys are put putting it together just you're executing it extremely well. So I you know well, I as a fan, I appreciate, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You know, I'm a fan first, so that's how I think about it and i have the advantage of having you know done the research and written about the band and kind of gotten to know them so i kind of know the history of stuff so it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds in terms of being able to you know have a fan's desire and a, and a fan's dreams in terms of what this material could be but also have the luxury of kind of being inside the belly of the beast a little bit and i can say okay this will work that'll work and and getting it getting the band to agree obviously is, is a big part of it and yeah we've done a you know i think for me that obviously this project probably means the most right alongside a dead man's pop because it's a chance to kind of um I don't want to say uh, correct history, but sort of present an, an alternate version of what this album could have sounded like, you know, at the time. And now we're doing it all these years later. And I think with particularly with the, with Don't Tell a Soul and Dead Man's Pop, I mean, that was a record that a lot of replacements fans didn't like. And, and it was down to the mix and to, to be able to let Matt Wallace get in and sort of finish the job that he had started producing that album was was a real honor. And in the same way with with this Tim reissue, the remix, which is done by Ed Stasium, um, uh, off of Tommy Ramone's original recordings, you know, Ed was Tommy's partner for many years, did all the Ramone stuff together. They were very close friends. And obviously Tommy Ramone having passed in 2014, we didn't have the option to go back to him and ask him to sort of try another mix. And so Ed was the guy that made the most sense sort of, you know, spiritually and 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 technically and all that kind of stuff. Cause he, he knows Tommy's production style and what he would have wanted. And, you know, and, and Ed really was going to be at one point was going to, was considered for that album to co-produce or at least to engineer. And so, Again, we're kind of going back and just uh, having the ability to sort of do things uh, the way that maybe it could have been and maybe should have been done back in the day. And and I think the end result, particularly with this new mix of Tim, is it's just a, you know, it's a revelation as a record to be able to hear those songs that, you know, I think all of us who are fans have known and loved for almost 40 years and and are so familiar with. But it's just to hear them almost anew, you know, is is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, I will say, you know, it's not not every remixed album piques my curiosity 
to the extent that this has. And as soon as you guys announced this, you know, yeah. I, I got a chance to put ears on left of the dial. I was like, yeah, this sounds so, so full. It, I would say one of the things that particularly are highlighted that I feel like gets a little bit um, squashed in the original mix is just like the finesse of Chris's drumming. It sounds yeah. so, I mean, those snares are popping like they've never sounded maybe on any replacements release shy of, uh, you know, short of the, the maybe the live records. I feel like it's right. like just hitting like you really want it to hit, you know? Well, that's one of the things in terms of the uh, of the record of Tim is that we wanted to restore was the presence of the rhythm section. And that was something that was a little bit lost in the way that it was mixed and just how the it was a much more mono sounding record. So there wasn't as much separation and, and, and the drums didn't, you know, the drums were sort of rendered as kind of, you know, the the era's 80s sort of digital effects and digital kind of recording technique. But when you hear it, you're hearing a band playing live, you know, tracking the three as a three piece live. Bob came in later and did his parts. But you're really hearing the rhythm section of, of, of Chris and Tommy just locked in and at kind of a peak. I think you do hear it a little bit uh, on Please to Meet Me, you know, uh, in terms of them, because at that point, they really another record that they basically tracked in the basic tracks as a three piece. But it's clear that it was earlier that they they were in, you know, kind of peak form as early as Tim. Um, and really rocking us, particularly on some of the, you know, the faster songs on this, you can really hear that. And, um, and yeah, so it's a testament to, you know, that was part of the, part of what we wanted to do was get a little bit more clarity and separation of the instruments. So you could kind of hear what the band was doing and what the individual members were doing, um, you know, and as well as kind of representing the whole of the song, but it's that that's been one of the benefits of Ed's approach to it is you can just, you can really hear the rhythm section really hear Chris's drums, especially. Yeah. Well, I'll say, I think I might be kind of the rare, uh, listener in the sense that i've always kind of though i see people's uh issues with the original mix i do kind of feel like uh for such a timeless band and kind of hard to pigeonhole exactly like if you didn't know the history of the replacements you could very well assume that they're a modern band in my opinion you know um right uh but it's kind of interesting as a time capsule piece that that record does have a little bit more of like where's its uh you know, it's era on its sleeve a little bit more. Yeah. And it, well, that's it, the, that's the thing with both, I think with both Tim and uh, Don't Tell a Soul. I mean, Please to Meet Me is a kind of odd sounding record. It was actually done digital, but that one kind of worked cohesively because of the producer, Jim Dickinson. He really got them and it kind of, it, it's of a piece. And so even though the sound maybe, it doesn't sound dated. It just sounds weird because Jim had really interesting sort of ideas about the sonic architecture of a record and that record in particular, which again is the only replacements album that was, that was completely done as a three piece. Um, but, but that's the thing is I've always felt, and I think the replacements always felt they, they were a rock and roll band, sort of a timeless rock and roll band. Yes. They came up in the sort of post-punk era and the American indie era and were existed really mainly through the eighties when all this stuff was going on with recording techniques and gated snare and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but I think they're a timeless band. And so for the two albums where they sort of sound a little bit fixed to a time and to a, to an era and to a kind of production uh, aesthetic, those are the ones we've gone back and fixed uh, or, or, you know, remixed. And I think not for that reason, I think those two records also have to be the two records that they had the least kind of input in, in terms of the mix. And uh, you know, up until that point, Paul, or the manager or Peter Jesperson had been mixing the record until co-mixing the records with an engineer until, until please meet me. So I think it's just, they seeded a little bit of control on both those records and it sort of went a different way. And I think this is just an opportunity to kind of um, get back to the, to the, what they actually recorded to the record they actually made in the studio and hear that rather than something that got a little bit filtered and, and sort of altered in the mix uh, as it was with both Tim and, and, and Don't Tell Soul. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you guys are doing it. I think the juxtaposition is neat. I, you know, I'm really excited about this fuller kind of more um, true to form mix that's coming out. But I feel like half the reason it's so exciting is that you get to listen to this other one where like, you know, it's not revisionist history as much as it's just kind of like, uh, especially with this time, the time in between, it kind of gives it where we've had, what, 38 years? Is that what you were saying? To appreciate the original mix and take it for what it is and kind of think, you know, it's it's part of the story. Part of, you know, they're, they're a band of the 80s that, like many bands, weren't able to completely escape right. the uh, the woes of 80s production. And it's kind of, to me, I find that to be part of the appeal, but it's so cool to hear a record that, a version of the record that is a, a little bit truer to what it might've been like to catch them live and yeah, and I think that I think now the interesting thing with this, I think we've kind of completed sort of a mission. So now if you go back to the first record or second record, or even if you go certainly starting from Let It Be and you hear Let It Be, the new Tim, Please to Meet Me, and and Dead Man's Pop, the sort of revised version of Don't Tell a Soul. Now those four records, you can see a through line. It all makes sense. The evolution is gradual, but it's much more logical. It sounds like the same band evolving rather than a band sort of going off into one direction sonically or another. And so that's kind of the most exciting thing for me is now with these with these two remixes, uh, the whole of the catalog, I think, makes a lot more sense. And you can sort of step back from it and see this band evolve both musically and creatively, but also uh, stylistically and, and sonically in the studio. And, and they learn to use the studio more over time, obviously. Uh, but but it really is to me, it's like that's kind of the coolest thing is we're not just um, sort of remixing this album. I think you're also kind of bringing a cohesion to the catalog that that now really sort of makes a lot of sense when you step back and look at it. Yeah, I kind of feel like it. Uh, if you weren't already feeling this way, uh, this project highlights the fact that the, the songwriting and the performance was always there. Sometimes some of the details get a little bit obscured by different stylistic choices, but like they're there. And if particularly on the Dead Man's Pop release and stuff, there's some songs that didn't even didn't quite resonate with me as much. And then something about just framing them a little bit different, like uh, like back to back or right. something like that, that I might have taken a little bit for granted when I first heard it. When I when you hear it, especially when you hear it on the inconsolated uh, performance, it's just like this song is like incredibly kick-ass you know like, I feel like it gets, it's a song that and i appreciate that they you know that people took some creative leaps in terms of their choices with mixing it back in the day but you know i do feel like you guys are doing a good job of kind of steering it a little bit closer to what i feel like like you said something that just kind of makes it a little bit more cohesive and separates well, things and also, so you can hear it all a little bit clearer and also like i say the point of this none of this is you know, listen, people sometimes think, well, and I explained this to somebody the other day on social media, uh, you know, sometimes the knee-jerk reaction, and I'm that way too, when people talk about remixing records is like, well, that's the record they made, you know, and that's how it should be. But in the case of Tim and in, in the case of Don't Tell a Soul, what got, that's not true. Those were the records that were released, but the actual record that got made in the studio was something quite different. And somewhere along that process during the mix, it got lost and shifted. I mean, you know, you can you can make a, a perfect, pure, beautiful sounding replacement record and with all these intended parts and ideas and all that stuff. But if that stuff gets taken out of the mix or obscured or you can't hear it or it gets sort of mushed together, um, then 
you're not really getting the record that replacements made. And I think in both these cases, that's why we haven't, you know, we're not messing with anything else, we're messing with the two that at the time the band was always kind of dissatisfied with, but that they released because there were other factors and nobody makes, you know, art or music or a career in a vacuum. There's always outside forces and, and reasons you make decisions at the time. But I think if it had been purely based on um, what the records should have sounded like and what the band wanted, you know, Dead Man's Pop is much more a replacements record than Don't Tell a Soul, which is much more a Chris Lord Algae record. Um, and with Tim, that's less, it's a little less true with Tim because, they, you know, it, it's more a sonic corrective. I think this version with Ed is that what was great and powerful about the band sort of got neutered in the mix and in the, and in the sort of array of stylistic choices that Tommy Ramone made. But now you can hear really what the band sounded like. And I think that's the main thing is like when you listen to Maxwell's, which came out, it was on the Tim era, and you hear some of these songs from Tim on there, they sound very different in terms of force and, and function and power to what was on the record. And now I think with the Tim remix that Ed Stasium has done, those things are much more aligned. You know, who the band was is live, who the band was at that time is much more aligned with what you're hearing on the record. And again, you know, to, for most people, that idea is a little bit nuanced and subtle. They don't quite understand, you know, how some, somebody can make a record and how it can be kind of completely sort of lost or, or altered in the mix. But that's that's what happens, you know, a lot of times. Uh, and again, fortunately, Tommy Ramone and the engineer, Phil, Steve Felstad, they recorded, or Tommy produced a great record and Steve engineered a great sounding record because the raw tapes are there. If they weren't, we wouldn't be able to do this. Um, and so, so they made a great record. And, you know, sometimes it happens. Things get a little, you know, sort of thrown in the mix. And, and like I say, this is just a, a really cool luxury that you know the band replacements and rhino have sort of afforded us and the fans to be able to kind of hear this version of it well i think if the if the nuances of that get lost on people possibly uh once they finally hear this this full yeah. release i think it's it's gonna yeah click. proof is in the pudding proof yeah. is in the pudding i think and they'll hear it i mean it is a pretty dramatic you know without with 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 dead man's pop and don't tell a soul there was a lot of editorial choices that were made in the mix like you know we'll completely cut this part out and we'll re redo it during the mix and all that kind of stuff so that one was really got away from the band's intention this one was again the tracks were all there in the mix they sort of got dialed out or, or sort of styled out based on some reverb or whatever else was going on but the tracks are, are still there fundamentally uh, in the original version but i think you can just hear so much more and feel so much more uh in in ed's new mix that you know it's it's really kind of a, a, a it should be a delight for for people who love that record you know well so far it's uh it's clicking for me man and i i think left of the dial was an interesting first song choice uh i feel almost ignorant for not knowing but what was the original uh you know when tim was first being released what was the original single if you will from it it was actually kiss me on the bus was the first single and and you know we've sort of did something maybe counterintuitive with uh we, we previewed the the new tim box set with left of the dial which is actually the only song on the album that was not cut during the album session so it was done with alex chilton earlier and alex did it alex made some amazing recordings and all of those the, the full pretty much the full alex chilton session is on the bonus disc of this of this box set um but so we we kind of you know we actually that one that song probably had the least room for improvement because it was done in a different in a different room in the studio and already sounded pretty good and we've improved that i think fairly dramatically so when you hear the rest of the tracks the tommy ramone produced stuff i think the difference is going to be even greater wow. but we wanted to kind of save that for people to to you know sort of hear when the when the box actually comes out and so we just teased it with an alex thing and um but yeah no and it's i, I think um 
then yeah, Kiss Me on the Bus was the first single, you know, to whatever extent that they got radio play, but that's the song that they uh, played on like the old Grey Whistle Test when they did a TV appearance is one of the two songs they did on Saturday Night Live. But, you know, back in 85, they weren't getting much radio play outside of college radio anyway. But but that was the single that was released as a, as a standalone too, as a 45. Well, I, uh, it's interesting to hear your reasoning behind uh, Left of the Dial was a first choice. I like that it's a if that's if that's what you think is kind of like a soft entry into this uh, change of pace, then I'm really excited to hear the rest of this, man. Yeah, and I think the things you know for me, the the, the real kind of uh, defining point in in hearing Ed's new mix was, you know, people always say, well, you know, there was so much great material around this time in this record, but they left off like "Nowhere Is My Home," which was a Chilton session song, or "Can't Hardly Wait," which they recorded with both Chilton and Tommy Ramone, uh, and they put on uh, a "Dose of Thunder" and "Lay It Down, Clown," which we really uh, Paul's attempts to give something for Bob to really shine on, you know, kind of more guitar, rock and uh, workout type stuff. And uh, those songs, so those songs have always been considered a little bit lesser. Uh, but the difference in those songs, those things just jump out. They sound amazing now and they really are kind of great sounding uh, songs now where historically they've kind of been considered sort of among the lesser material of the album. So for me, that was the real kind of thing. When I heard Ed's new mixes of Dose of Thunder in particular, it was like, holy shit, you know, this is unbelievable. I mean, the difference uh, in terms of what he's been able to do with with the stuff that was considered sort of, you know, B-grade material, it sounds just overwhelmingly great. So that was a good sign that we were on the right track. Well, it's funny to me that I feel like that does come up as a, as a point when people are kind of picking apart this track list but you know as a as a fan of the band i feel like every record has like that's a very real side of the band you know the um oh, yeah. the kind of not overthought just kind of more straight ahead rockers big dumb rockers those are the best yeah. ones that they have you know like in my yeah. opinion um i don't i've never really understood i feel like uh to get a full picture of the band, it would be not a real replacements record in my mind right. if there wasn't a few songs that felt kind of just like we didn't, this one's not super profound. That's not the intention, you know? Right, right. No, that's the, the beauty of the band was their variety and their mix and they could be very, you know, be beautiful and poetic, but also really sort of just obvious and, and you know, dumb, you know, in their own, they're stupid like the Ramones, you know? Uh, but it's, it's interesting because when we put out the Maxwell's live record, there's a version of Dose of Thunder on there. And the comment I always, I saw and heard from most people was like, oh man, I never really liked that song, but hearing it live, it really, it's actually, they did a really great version. And that was one of the things, you know, when you hear the new version on Ed's remix is it wasn't that it was a bad song or that didn't do what it was supposed to do. It was in the mix, it got a little bit neutered. It's really supposed to be kind of like this stomping Slade type song, you know, Slade being one of Paul's favorite bands and, and this really kind of rocking big thing. And if you take that away from it as, as it kind of got taken away of in the original mix, then you really don't have much. So now we've kind of restored it to its full sort of Slade-esque glory and, you know, with the stomps and, and, and the guitars being really big and you can hear that. So sometimes, you know, that sometimes the songs are don't work the way they're supposed to because they get, again, sort of through that filter of a, of a of a mix that does something different to the song that would probably was the band's intention so um yeah no it's it's great and then you know, like you say they have a tradition of having songs kind of in the same spot in the album something like lay down clown it's like you know falls where gary's got a boner is or i won't off of uh you know don't tell us souls so that part of the band was very much always you know a, an ongoing thing yeah i think that i love when a band does that same way that like uh you know on Harry Nielsen's, uh, Nielsen Schmilson, how right. you'll have Lime in the Coconut either directly right. before or after without you. And, you know, right. like to right. me, that's, 
kind of taking the piss out of your own project in a way that is extremely, uh, you know, it's just not taking yourself overly serious, which is yeah, refreshing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, it's, uh, and that, I think in a way that's why the, you know, why their records really work, particularly in this, in this period, uh, you know, really starting from, starting from Hootenanny even, but Hootenanny, let it be, uh, Tim, pleased to meet me, especially, uh, you know, th there's such a wide range of stuff. Uh, you know, it's like with Let It Be, you've got Gary's got a boner, and then you have Unsatisfied or Sixteen Blue coming. You know, soon after with 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 this one, you've got you know Lay Down Clown, and then you've got Left to Die, Little Mascara, and here comes a regular like Bam Bam Bam. You know, so and and same thing on same thing on Please to Meet Me. You know, you got the uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, blanking on the my thing I've listened to six thousand times, but you know, you've got like stuff like IOU or stuff like Shoot Shoot Dirty Pool, and then you've got Skyway. Uh, or and and the sort of horn and strings version of can't hardly wait. So they always had that aspect to them of of kind of mixing stuff, and that's I think why people people love them. You know, uh, they they were very few bands capable of doing all that stuff uh, credibly, and they can do beautiful, poetic, and sad, and also big, dumb, and rocking. You know, just as well. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's easy to be really good at one or really good at the other, but to be able to you know at the moment's notice crank out a, a you know top-notch version of either style of song is very impressive. Um, yeah. I will say one of the interesting parts of kind of just their their songwriting art in general to me is that it seems like uh, like Can't Hardly Wait was around for so long before it finally found its way onto a record. And I feel like it was, you know, I, I was not around at the time that this was first being debuted or anything, but it seems to me uh, when I'm, you know, in stuff that I'm reading and just kind of like through your book and other things that, that uh, the song was probably kind of even sort of a, at least a live favorite before it ever found a home. And it just seemed like it was like one of those songs that they probably had to have known this is one of their best songs long before yeah. they could find a place for it on a record. Yeah, well, actually, you know, it was written in 84 kind of and and was written, I think, before uh, Let It Be had come out. And Paul wow. thought and I think Peter wanted to put it on the record. But it was too late. You know, they Twin Tone being the company couldn't, you know, the, the timing wasn't just right. So then they did demo it. It was one, and they were playing it live all that year, 84 and into early 85. Um, and then in 85, when they did the January 1985 sessions with Alex Chilton, they tried recording and that was the first attempt at recording it. And on the box set, we have all, we have all the versions, multiple versions of it, but the versions they, they try to, Paul tried what's kind of colloquially known as the air shaft demo, where he went into this the studio they were re recording was a, a old movie theater and he went into what was then the projection booth that was kind of being used as a reverb chamber and recorded there so there's that version which has been reissued before um there's a there's an electric version that they did with chilton they also tried it with tommy ramon but then there's a new version on this box set um that paul had an idea and a vision for the song and just quite wasn't wasn't hearing it quite the way he wanted in all these sort of attempts that they made around in in 85 but um, he one version of the song that's on here that nobody's heard that's going to be part of us that's part of the box set and also part of a standalone single that that Rhino is selling um, is a version with cello. Paul brought in the receptionist who worked at the studio, happened to be a cellist, a professional cello player, and she was in some rock bands and stuff. And uh, he said, "Bring your cello and, and play to this song." So we've got a version of that. She did a couple passes of it. They didn't really have time to finish mixing it, and and, and it never came out really. In the two thousand eight version. Uh, the electric version that was on the 2008 reissue of Tim. You can hear it just a little bit at the end, but there's a full version where Paul 
acoustic Paul singing and a cello backing him. And that's on this disc, uh, on this box set and on, on the bonus disc. So yeah, it's a song that went through many permutations. And of course, finally, two or three years later, when they recorded it uh, for Please to Meet Me and a kind of different arrangement and Jim Dickinson added horns and strings to it. And that became the version that everybody know, knows and you know loves because that was the, the released one on Please to Meet Me. And of course, at the time, Paul complained a little bit about, well, he put strings on it, but it's funny is two years earlier paul was the one putting strings on it uh but but that's so yeah so we've got i think four or five different versions of of can't hardly wait which was a really important song in there and historically has been in their catalog but you can hear how it evolved or all the various versions that paul was trying you know around 85 with it yeah i mean and i you know i think that's just like kind of par for the course for the band for there to just be like something that's uh uh fantastic and difficult at the same time you know it's like obviously that probably i would imagine it was uh driving them a little crazy that they were sitting on this amazing song and just couldn't quite figure out where and yeah, how not, to include it yeah i'm not sure what paul i mean i think all the versions are great i think the original electric yeah, version with children is great i think the one they did with tommy ramon is quite good even though it kind of it doesn't have a full solo on it I like the released version, but I think, you know, I think people are going to really just be knocked out by this, by the, what we call the cello mix of it. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, so it's, you know, that's definitely a song that gets a lot of focus and a lot of attention in this new box set, the Let It Bleed box set. Well, I'll say, I think it was, I forget if it, it might be on that All for Nothing compilation that came out mm-hmm. a while back. Um, there was one that they, you know, that they labeled, I believe it just it was a parenthetical Tim version. Um, yeah, that's the I, one they did with. Tommy Ramone, that's the one they recorded during the album sessions. Um, and we've got a version, a new mix of that on here as well. So, well, when I first heard that, you know, as a teenager, I was, it dawned on me, I was like, wow, if this song had been on Tim, you right. know, it just seems like such a good fit for Tim to me. Right. Um, as, as people feel about Nowhere Is My Home and a few other songs. Um, to me, Tim is an incredible album. But if you think about throwing those two on top of it as well, it's just right. like, God, what yeah. the, the material that the, I feel like those are the songs that were on the that ended up on the chopping block for that record. It's just like, get, come on, <laughs> right? And there's another song on this box set um, called "Having Fun" that's never been heard, never been bootlegged, uh, and it's actually a Tommy Stin, uh, rather Tommy Stinson pen song. He wrote it, uh, but actually Paul sings it uh, on this version that we have. And it said Tommy, so Tommy Stinson's playing like lead guitar, and Tommy Ramone's playing rhythm guitar, and 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 Paul's singing it. Uh, and so that's a unique and unusual circumstance too. And it sounds very much like something that was, you know, recorded as it was during the Tim sessions. It sounded like it could have been on the album as well. So there was definitely a, a fair amount of uh, things that could have chosen. But you know, the, that was part of the thing with the replacements. And Paul was, you know, if they got something but they didn't, you know, they didn't like it, or rather, if they liked it but they got tired of it, or you know, or he got bored with songs very easily, and so. Certainly, they, with, with at least Can't Hardly Wait, he knew how good that was, and they tried it multiple times. You know, Nowhere Is My Home, as far as I know, they did not try and record that again uh, with, with the Tommy Ramone. And I, and I think they already, since they were already putting Left of the Dial, they didn't want to put multiple songs from the Children's Session on the on, on the new record. But but yeah, I mean, he was, he was at a peak as a writer, I think, and there was a peak at a band. So it's really exciting to be able to, you know, it was exciting to be able to dig into the, to the archives. And, you know, even on this thing, we have alternate versions of like Bastards of Young and, uh, and uh, uh, let's see what else. Uh, songs that, you know, again, with different lyrics, different arrangements, different approaches, you know, so they were definitely in a, in a real kind of uh, peak creative moment, I think, during this record. Well, they had a lot 
going on for him at the time. I feel like, you know, obviously it's the first Sire release. And, you know, la- last thing I'll harp on in regards to Can't Hardly Wait is that I agree that, like, all of these versions are amazing. I feel like there's, I've known plenty of people who, uh, you know, friends whose whose opinions I respect, <laughs> but they'll talk about how the Please to Meet Me version is overwrought with the horns and what right. I'm like, that's the, if you're in the studio in Ardent and you have access to the Memphis horns, why would you not play right. around with it? You know what right. I mean? Uh, I love all the versions as well. And there's a version that I think almost sounds as if, uh, I don't even know, it might be a Chilton session holdover as well, but it sounds almost like, it feels like Paul's almost just like kind of showing Chris how the song goes and he's just like, yeah, that's the brushes along to it. And that version's amazing. And that's as simple yeah, that's as the- I've heard it. Yeah, that's the it was kind of an acoustic demo. It's what's known as the air shaft version. That's the one where he went into the the idea with that one was they were Paul. The whole idea with that song originally is Paul was going to go into that sort of projection room, reverb room and play it acoustically. And then he was going to have that playing for the band in the tracks as they recorded it as a full band. But they couldn't really hear it, uh, the his acoustic version over the over the headphones. And so they scrapped that and just did a straight electric version. But that demo, that guide track is, is the one you're referring to. The, the, it's not, like I say, it's known as the air shaft version. Uh, and that's on here as well. So yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, for a band that a lot of times because of their reputation personally and on stage and the drinking and the chaos and all that stuff, what kind of gets overlooked is just how creative they were and how, how much, particularly in this period, they were really uh, evolving in the studio as a, as a, as a kind of creative entity and, and, and as a recording outfit. And so I think this this box that kind of restores that a little bit of an understanding about, you know, who and what they were creatively. And you can hear that as the songs evolve and the different versions and, and all the things that that they were trying at that time that we've we've put on this on, on this set. And to me, Tim in particular is such an interesting snapshot of the band because, you know, it's they're they're signed to Sire Records now. They're, I'm sure it wasn't lost onto them how neat it is to be collaborating with somebody, one of the founding members of the Ramones, uh, right. getting this time in the studio with Alex Chilton, befriending him. You know, at that point, I feel like they were almost more so peers with him rather than just yeah. looking up to him, which is its own can of worms to process as a as an artist yeah. when you're when your heroes become your peers. Um so and then also at the same time, this is when things are getting maybe a little more strained with some personnel in the band. And uh, absolutely. So it's just like there's so many factors going into this that if the uh, if the outcome, you know, it's just such a cool snapshot oh, it's, of the band. It's true. You know, you raise a good point. One of the things that we found in in the process of remixing this is, and Ed Smith, he restores a lot of Bob's guitar parts. He had. He had, you know, Bob came in basically, he didn't really record the album with all the basic tracks. He came in a couple times in the studio, but basically recorded all his parts in one day. And Tommy Ramone just recorded him soloing and playing through songs and kind of edited, picked and choose what he wanted to include on it. And, um, you know, Bob always complained later in life that, yeah, something like that stuff got taken out, you know, wasn't on the record. And when we went through the, through the, through the reels, sure enough, there was a lot of great stuff that really worked for the songs that for one reason or another, Tommy Ramon decided not to use and Ed, you know, having really gone through all the tracks, found the best stuff uh, and and kind of restores a lot of those things that are missing, you know, little connective bits, little fills, little fills in the verses, not so much solos per se, but um, but parts that really kind of even enhance the songs and that really should have been there. And our what we kind of surmised is, you know, because they track the album as a three piece, because Bob 
Bob wasn't around. Like maybe Tommy Ramone kind of got used to those versions. And then when Bob came in and did all, all this stuff, there was so much to sort through uh, that some of it, he, you know, some of it he discarded for good reason. It didn't really work, but then some of it he used, but then there's other bits that he just didn't reuse that don't really make a lot of sense. And it was maybe because he kind of has, was used to hearing it and it seemed like it was too much you know, at that point on Bob coming in on top of it later, which is a totally understandable thing to happen. But now, you know, with the benefit of time and hindsight and kind of stepping away from it and Ed coming to it fresh, he was able to go back and say, no, man, this, these guitar parts, these counter melodies that he's playing in Little Mascara, for example, which are not at present at all on the on the original mix, they really work. You know, it was clear Bob was had, had sort of composed these parts with the idea that they would fit with the song. It wasn't just him going crazy in the studio. And so a lot of that stuff has been restored. So, you know, when you talk about circumstances and the reality of life and the band sort of impacting what ended up on the record, you know, it happens. And that's the perfect example of it. Uh, you know, Bob not being there to begin with, coming and doing all his stuff in one day, and then maybe Tommy sort of reacting to that and thinking, well, that's too much. And then some of the best parts on the record are, are, aren't aren't there in the mix. And so now, like I say, we just, uh, again, time is kind of the great equalizer. It makes, it makes you able to see, you know, what has value and what doesn't. And Ed coming to it and finding those Bob parts is, is a really exciting development, one of the many exciting developments of this remix. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting to think that there's just so much there. And, and I like that it's like, little things because i feel like we all know bob is this uh yeah capable shredder but i feel like he has some he's very uh capable of some you know flourishes that aren't quite so um you know over the top a little bit more understated and uh yeah. you know, he, he's he's a dynamic player as well you know um no he had a great melodic sense and a great sense of these songs and you know uh a lot of these songs because he wasn't there uh, for the tracking sessions, he was probably hearing for the first time, some of them, you know, I'm not even sure to the, what extent that they rehearsed all of the things. And so, you know, it's, it's also shows his brilliance kind of off the top of his head coming up with these parts, but, you know, uh, with little mascara, he had, he, they, they, had, they had tried that earlier, but, um, so I think that's why that one in particular, he had given some thought to and why that one really comes out, but yeah, you'll hear it on this, on this new mix. You'll hear these lines that he's playing that, you now when you go back and listen to the original mix it just feels like there's this big gaping hole there because it's like oh my god this was where his parts should have been and were really kind of designed to be well that's fantastic man um you know one one thing that uh, i'm really excited about is, is that not ready for prime time the additional um you know disc of live, of live material yeah. um right. and one thing that you know just I don't think that they really go too hand in hand because I don't know how much Tommy Ramon was involved in the production of, of the Ramon's live album. It's alive. But to me, that is, Wait, like, yeah. that is a, um, and he very well, I know he was very hands-on in production with other records of theirs, but that to me is a, like, that's by far my favorite Ramon's release. It's such yeah. a great live album. And, uh, no, I kind of I would love to hear your thoughts on where, cause not ready for prime time, this new bonus live disc, it's not too far off uh, timeline wise from from sales. Maxwell's. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear kind of how the two, those two kind of. Well, well, well we chose other. it for, yeah, we chose it for a few reasons. One, obviously we, with all these ones, we didn't do it with uh, please to meet me because there wasn't a good quality live show from that era, but with all the releases we've done, you know, don't tell a soul we did incarcerated with um, sorry, Ma, we did a, a live concert from 81. Uh, and, and with this one, what we wanted was something in the time period. And the thing about that time period is it's really kind of the last 
early 86 is the last great live period with Bob in the band. They played through May with Bob, but the last few months, particularly starting with the April tour, and then they went to Europe in May uh, and then came back, I think, in the States in, in, in June. You know, he, he was really kind of, it was towards the end of, the beginning of the end of his relationship with the band. And so the performances aren't quite as together. And so early 86 really is kind of the a peak period for the band. One, they had a bunch of new gear, so they sounded really good on stage, you know, amps and stuff, um, and very powerful. And it, and it, but the reason we chose this is because the, the recording for um, Not Ready for Prime Time was made by their sound man, Monty Lee Wilkes, who's since passed. Great guy, great sound man, ended up working for Nirvana, Britney Spears, everybody, all the big names you can think of. And he had recorded a, a number of shows on that tour, and this was one and recorded. And he always said that, you know, as great as the Maxwell show is, there was a feeling of self-consciousness because the band knew they were being recorded because there was a big mobile truck parked outside, you know, and that sort of somewhat maybe affected their performance. And I think in a good way, because it kept the set pretty tight and, and their performance pretty ferocious, but always better to sort of let the replacements be the replacements, I think, without any sort of outside sort of factors impeding what they might be. And this is one of those shows he kind of recorded on the fly. It's an amazing sounding show. Of course, it's not a multi-track professional show, but it's a, but it is a, but it is a, professionally done because Monty, you know, was great. And you can hear him dialing in the sound the first few songs and it's a little uneven in spots, but man, the performance is unbelievable. So we chose it for that reason because there it's a it's a kind of you know this unself-conscious performance by the band. An amazing set list. It's the band at their last great peak with Bob. Um additionally they always played well in Chicago. That was kind of a second home to them. They loved the Metro. So all the factors were going in their favor that night. Also it was a makeup date for a show from the previous fall. So they were not on tour. So so, you know, they weren't really hitting it hard every night and wearing themselves out and Paul wearing his voice out. So his voice sounds a lot better than I think it, it did even on Maxwell's. Uh, and then again, the set list is is not the same, but similar. You know, they touch on a few things, but get some different covers then. And so all in all, and the crowd is really into it as well. So all in all, it's kind of like the perfect thing. Also, is from a kind of historical perspective, it was the show they did as soon as they got finished the show in Chicago, January 11th, they went back to Minneapolis and they told, hey, you're going on Saturday Night Live in a few days. So hence the name, not ready for prime time. So, you know, it's kind of fits perfectly uh, in the kind of chronology of this box set. The earliest recordings are from uh, the Alex Chilton sessions of January of 85. And then um, the the live disc ends the box set January of 86. So it's kind of a year in the in the studio and on the stage with the replacements and uh, and kind of felt like a perfect bonus and bookend to the to the Chilton sessions and the album in general. Well, the fact that it's, uh, you know, close in proximity to the for sale record to me does not is not a uh, that's a that's bonus points because that's just like hey. they are just you can tell on that record that they are just firing on all cylinders and they just sound yeah. fantastic. And they sound like they're having a lot of fun together still. It seems yeah. like maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the story you hear about things getting tense and things getting, uh, you know, personalities clashing. And it just, it's nice to hear them sounding like a unit and whether whatever's going on behind the scenes, I'm sure a lot of it was already there, but. Um, yeah, no, well, they like, like, like I said, they love to, you know, it made a difference. You know, there's a reason they chose to record them at Maxwell's in 86, because that was one of their favorite venues. Metro Cabaret Metro Chicago was another great one because the replacements performance could really depend on what their vibe and their mood was. And if they were in a place that they liked that they were comfortable with, you know, uh, that that's always a good thing. And so, you know, the same with like the 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 bonus show on uh, Unsuitable for Listening, uh, the the bonus show from the Sorry Mob box that they did it at uh, the Seventh Street Entry, which is probably their favorite venue, you know, hometown venue. And so so that that's part of what guides, I think, you know, the choice. But for this one, everything just kind of clicked. It was a really good sounding show, really good sounding performance, kind of a one off. So they were kind of in peak 
and worn themselves out on the road. Setlist is great. Bob even gets up and, and sings a song, does a version of the Crusher, this Minnesota garage thing, which is rare. So, you know, like I say, it's it's not quite at the level sonically of um, of Maxwell's because obviously that was done by the FNL mobile unit, which recorded U2 and the Rolling Stones and that was it. But I think in, in its own way, this is an equally good show uh, because, you know, it was done kind of on, you know, the, the sound man just recording it, rolling tape and and, and getting a very, uh, you know, unaffected, uh, unself-conscious performance that also happens to be really great and exciting, like, a, like, a, like you know, like if you were there at a replacement show in early 86. Absolutely, man. Uh, you know, whenever I'm, uh, you know, reached out to you and we, we got this in the, in the books to have you on the show. Um, I kind of opened Pandora's box a little bit, reached out to some Matt's fans and was like, Hey, you know, this is going on. If anybody's got anything they want me to touch on. And of sure. course, tons and tons of feedback. <laughs> and one thing, one thing that I feel like um, I did want to relay to you, which I feel like I pretty firmly know what the answer is probably going to be, but it seems like there's a lot more interest in, um, some repackaged version of when the shit hits the fans than I would expect, which I think is <laughs> such a cool release. But I think part of the, the one of the most exciting aspects of that release to me is that it was like a fairly limited cassette only right. release. Um, but I do understand, you know, as it's, a fan, I, people I, want whatever they can get their hands on. Right. You know? I mean, it's an interesting curio. I mean, for the, the, the sort of likelihood and the logistics of actually releasing that as part of one of these things. I mean, one, it's, it's not a very well-recorded show sonically. I mean, it's okay. There's tons of covers, you know, mostly covers, so it makes it very hard. So licensing, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, licensing, all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think the, that was the novelty of that being on this cassette with the hand-drawn cover and all that stuff. You know, maybe someday as a kind of, tchotchke or almost promo piece that would make sense but for something that we we're going to put on the box that we really wanted it didn't want it to be uh just like a thing for you know real hardcore fans to have as like a little curio but you know we wanted something that actually said something creatively and i mean that <laughs> shit hits the fans does say something creatively but uh not at the at the level that i think you know we wanted to put on there but you know it, and, and again there's also logistic reasons why putting something like that out would be hard so maybe it'll come out in some weird form but i wouldn't hold out for that being a kind of you know a, a part of a main box set or package unfortunately i think that makes perfect sense i mean to me I understand the appeal and people reaching out and asking about it because right. it's a very real part of the band's um, history. Sure. Yeah. History is that, you know, everybody knows that there was a gamble on whether or not you're going to get that style of set or a for sale kind of set. Right. I think in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, playability and how often you're going to listen to it, you're probably going to get a lot more replay value out of a for sale or a, yeah. but that being said, I'm glad I have a copy of that tape in my collection. It's neat. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, uh, well, and I it's think, and it's pretty available too. I think on YouTube or whatever or online. Yeah, you know, it's not so like that people can hear. Exactly. I think one of the coolest things about it is that it feels so. Um, it feels extra. The fact that it is this lo-fi recording and that you can hear Paul changing the tape over at one point, it feels extremely. Uh, it's unpolished to an extent that makes you feel almost like you weren't supposed to hear it or something yeah, yeah. you're in on a secret well i think that's why they they 
when they snatched the tape and listened to it, they thought it was funny. And that's why they put it out as their kind of goodbye to twin tone. And I would say that the, that the, the not ready for prime time has some of that same feel, uh, it's a much higher quality recording and probably a better performance and a more original based performance. But again, that's, that's kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning of that is like, yeah, there wasn't a big mobile truck parked outside recording them. So they were just being themselves. And I think you really hear that on this and it happens them being themselves in January of, of, of 86, you know, meant they were probably the best rock and roll band on the planet. And so you hear that as well uh so it's kind of a nice uh nice thing to have that a little bit of that sort of surreptitious quality uh on this recording that monty made uh but you also get the the quality of the performance that you get on something like maxwell's absolutely man well thanks for going long about all the tim stuff and i, uh, I sure. didn't want to want to pick your brain about that but there's a lot of other aspects of your career that i'd like to touch on i won't i won't keep sure. you too long but um you know uh whether it be from your music critic work or your, you know, obviously you've had a lot of great accolades with all of the, uh, you know, the liner notes, Grammys that you've received and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, there's things that you've, I feel like you and I are very, our, our tastes are, seem to be very aligned. Almost every project that you get your hands on is something that means a lot to me. Um, are there any projects that you, um, you know, if it's already in the works, of course, I don't expect you to let the cat out of the bag, but are there any other like kind of dream things that you haven't gotten involved with it, but that you could imagine yourself being? Um, you know, uh, well, you know, I, have, I have to say I've been very, very fortunate. I mean, I've basically been able to do liner notes or be part of, you know, literally some of my favorite records and, and bands. You know, I did uh, I did some liner notes for the big Starbucks that came out in 2009. I've done stuff for the Kings. Uh, you know, obviously all the replacement stuff has been in addition to doing the liner notes, I've produced all that stuff. The Wilco thing that I won the Grammy for this year, which is the deluxe of Yankee Hotel uh, Foxtrot, 20th anniversary edition of that. Um, you know, I did the liner notes for, got to write, you know, really like a small book about that. So I've been, and Warren Zevon for uh, the, the Warner Brothers record, uh, you know, so many things that like were, you know, my favorite records that I've been able to, to, to do liner notes for or be involved in producing them or, or whatever. So uh, I've got one other thing this year, replacements, the years, the times when we're working on a box set, particularly one that was as labor intensive as this one, I probably end up doing fewer liner notes or outside stuff because it's just, you know, it's so, so involved to, to put something like this together. But this year I've got something I can't say yet, but it's a band that definitely was very much influenced by the replacements who has a, a big box set coming out. And I think they're going to announce that in the next week. And so I did a pretty long set of liner notes for that as well. And, um, and so a little later generation kind of replacements influence group. So that'll be coming out or be announced here in the next week or so. So, but yeah, the, this year has mostly been, you know, just kind of working on the Tim box set and even going back to last year. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's tons of stuff that I would love to be involved with and deal with. Hopefully I can get some of it, but you know, if I didn't do any other liner notes for the rest of my life, I've, I've had my fair share of really amazing <laughs> things that I've been a part of, you know? Well, um, you know, I think that the, the liner notes and the, and the other aspects of your career have been like, uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like they're, you don't, you don't approach things um, very half-assed, you know, it seems like well, you yeah. really go for it. And I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's not well, like you're I'm just there for, to, to have your name attached to this cool project. You, you get the gig and knock, but the reason you continue to get gigs is because of your execution. You know, your, your follow through is very uh, impressive. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're given an opportunity, you know, obviously with the replacement stuff, it's different because I'm kind of, you know, producing so I can kind of have a little more control over it. But even when I'm just hired to do liner notes on something, you know, you're lucky you get to work with people who are just as serious about it, like 
the Wilco stuff, my friend Cheryl Pavelski produced that. She runs Omnivore Recordings. She actually used to work at, was it Rand Rhino back in the day? Uh, and she's another person who, you know, she spent so many years kind of working with Wilco and doing their stuff and just bringing really top knot, you know, and so she was like, hey, I want, I want you to write a really serious, definitive version of this album story with the benefit of hindsight and all the, you know, the 20 years that have passed. And so it's like when somebody approaches you like that, it's very easy to, to, uh, to do the job, but I always, you know, I, again, my, my whole approach to everything is as a fan, it's like when I get a, a box set or, or a reissue, I want to, I want the liner notes, you know, to be really good too. I want that to enhance the experience of listening to the record and tell me something I didn't know and really get deep into the recording and, uh, and all the little details and all the stuff that you find out, you know, the liner notes are kind of the place for that stuff. And I think you want something that is just as valuable as the audio, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's, so it's part of a bigger, greater package as a whole. And so that's the way I always approach the, the liner notes stuff, which I, which I love doing. It's kind of one of my favorite things uh to do of the of the kinds of stuff i write because it's like you're really uh you know you, you know working for daily paper which i've done or working for all weekly you know you're writing for a general audience you're trying to introduce people but when you're you know writing writing for an audience that's very knowledgeable about the band and the subject you can just go so much deeper and you know who have shelled out 100 bucks for a box set you know you know what they want and they want the the added level of depth and detail and research and, and information and and so like it's it's a great opportunity when i get good calls to do stuff like that it's like you can really dig into stuff which is what i like to do you know so yeah well you know over time your career has evolved a lot you know you started out doing a lot of um you know sports writing which i could get into that with you i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a late in life sports fan so i find it always really interesting when there are people who are uh clearly very big music appreciators and those worlds sometimes are just set feel very separate but it's it's yeah. nice when there are uh some people who can see and appreciate both, but uh, you know, obviously your, your music criticism work and then evolved into what I think, honestly, I feel like, you know, um, I spared nerding out too deep on trouble boys, but like uh, that record, I mean, sorry, that book rather is, uh, is incredible, man. I've revisited it. I think uh, this week when I was uh, revisiting it in prep for this was the, maybe the third time that I've spent with it. And it is, it just, every time I feel like there's, something that i missed and they're just that it's just a real treasure trove of uh of like very very detailed and very um but worthwhile um details you know um so that being said you know you've done all of these things are there some mediums that you haven't quite um approached yet that you would be interested in like i for one not to just uh pigeonhole you or point you in a direction but I, i could see you shifting gears to being a documentarian like in yeah. the easy that would be a give you a camera and, the, and my favorite documentary is going to get made you know well well i appreciate that yeah i mean obviously with replacements and off trouble boys we've had a lot of interest and even had some project you know versions of things in the works and i think eventually with the replacements i'm hoping there'll be a full-scale documentary that'll come out and you know again for various reasons starting with reunion then doing these reissues and other things we've kind of stopped and started on that but i think that's inevitable it's such a great story and and we've got the foundation sort of laid with what what i've done and what we've done that 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 that'll be you know happening at some point um i i will say with this um 
with this Tim box set. We did shoot some very cool stuff with Ed Stasium in his studio in San Diego, really breaking down the tracks and going through that. And that's going to be a piece that um, that we you know put together and, and that'll be out around the time the record comes out, just giving people a little bit more insight. Uh, so it's kind of like a mini doc on, on this record, but very cool to be able to sort of access that stuff. So we're in the we're in the editing process on that. So so yeah, I'm doing a little bit of that as we go along with this stuff. And and also just with these liner notes, you know, I've got a new set of liner notes for the Tim box set. Um, uh, that's, you know, obviously based on some of the stuff in the book, but way deeper and way more detail and stuff we've learned since then, you know, since the book came out and, and I've done that with each of the liner notes for, for the replacements reissues. It's given me a chance to go back to, you know, the research and the stuff I'd written for the book and expand on it and get even more in depth, more in detail. And, and again, having further access and going through the tracks, there was more stuff that was revealed. So it's kind of all, this is one big sort of ongoing project, you know, since doing the book and then the reissues and then the liner notes for that. And then the kind of side stuff with, with, with the reissues in terms of promo films or, 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 you know, we've done some video, uh, uh, some Zoom roundtables or some in-person conversations with people involved in some of the stuff, uh, some podcasts too. We did some really good stuff with Rhino, uh, a great dead, a couple of great dead man's pop podcasts, one with Tommy Stinson and one with Matt Wallace and Tony Berg, who produced the album at various points. And so, so yeah, all this stuff is just kind of uh, added, added info and kind of really rounds out the story i think and for fans that's you know for me being a fan first that's that's what i would want for you know any band i'm a fan of but you know i've gotten a chance to do that with the replacements so far so well yeah the work has not gone unappreciated man and on a completely separate note um i saw a post that you made a while back uh, regarding ted hawkins and and the uh experience that you had seeing him uh as a busker right right um yeah, yeah will, that was a... I will say uh I think that his song Sorry You're Sick was on my radar, although I did not even realize it was him. For some reason, the bar I work at, that song just like just pops up a lot. But uh after reading your post, it I I'm not positive what song he was playing in that performance that you posted, but it sounded his voice was just so incredible that yeah. I I have been listening to it nonstop, man. So I, I just wanted to personally thank you for turning me on to a a, a new artist, yeah. man. I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan at this point. Well, there's a big connection with the replacements too, because he was somebody that um, Peter Jesperson, who managed replacements, brought to Minneapolis for his first performance. And the replacements love that that his his record that came out in '82 was really kind of a, a compilation. And in fact, on the um, on uh, on the Please to Meet Me sessions, on one of the bonus tracks, I'm forgetting now. Maybe it was Tosin and Turnin, but one of the covers they did. He throws in a snatch of a Ted Ted Hawkins song uh, called "The uh, uh, Who Got My Natural Comb." So the replacements were huge Ted Hawkins fans. That's probably one of the few bands that artists they all agreed on who they thought was great. And of course, you know, and Paul I know went and saw him when he came to to Minneapolis for the first time in the early '90s and stuff. And so, so yeah, he's another guy. Just you know, coincidentally, when I grew up in LA, he was busker there. And so the you know all these threads kind of connect uh, in, in a funny way. But yeah, no, I'm glad you got turned on to Ted. More people should know about him. Uh, you know, he was he he was sort of a hot commodity for a while in the in the you know in the late eighties, early nineties, particularly in England. He was pretty big. He got over there and was on TV a lot. And uh, but obviously, he, and and Tony Berg, coincidentally, the guy who produced the Bearsville sessions for the replacements, uh, he produced Tony. Uh, he produced Ted Hawkins' last album. Uh, so again, this like full circle with with all the replacement stuff. Uh, but you know, then Ted passed in, in ninety four. I think right either right before or right after that album came out. I think right before. So 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 he's a little bit you know. So 25, 30 years have gone by now. So it's, I think he's due for a, for a rediscovery. 
I think so too, man. He seems like the type of artist that uh, a label like Light in the Attic or somebody would just right. like be so perfect for, um, right. or really anybody. But they just that just seems kind of like their uh, their niche a little bit in, in terms yeah. of uh, you know relative obscurity, but just like right. uh, absolute diamond. Uh, but man, thank you so much for coming on. I'm very excited about all the projects, and um, you know I'm gonna keep telling people they need to buy a copy of Trouble Boys and uh, appreciate I'm it. I'm glad you stayed enthusiastic that you haven't uh, burnt out. You seem like the joy is still there. So I'm glad. Yeah, somehow, somehow I've managed to, I got lucky in finding a, a, a band and a, and a kind of subject that I haven't, even after all these years, and I think it's going on uh, 17 years of active, active duty, haven't, haven't gotten tired of, but you know, like I say, that's really down to the music and, and uh, how much is really is there beyond even what people, even what I knew early on. And, and that's kind of what this whole reissue series has been about. So if we can, you know, kind of expand that knowledge and understanding of the, of the replacements of music, their catalog and their creativity, then, you know, I'll continue to be enthusiastic. So. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And, um, you know, I'm going to probably log on here to the Rhino site and order me a, a box set here. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um that's cool. Was was there any other questions, fan questions you had? Was it just the shit? Um, or was there one thing that the fans seem to ask a lot, which I feel like, um, you know, to me, uh, doesn't define the quality of the project, but I understand their curiosity. Uh, I did notice a few fans asking just quite how involved the band, you know, Paul or Tommy or who, whoever might yeah. have actually been in the in the process of this. Um, well, I mean, obviously, we can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's some misnomers both about the replacements, like relationship with warner brothers and and also like to their involvement and stuff like we warner brothers i suppose could do certain things without the bands okay but they never would it's not replacements aren't the kind of band that you would do that so it's like everything that um rhino has put out really since 2005 which was the point where the twin tone catalog moved over through a series of mergers and acquisitions to become uh part of the rhino become part of warner brothers and then rhino which is their catalog arm so in 2005 all of the replacements music, the Twin Tone stuff and the Warner Brothers stuff was under one roof, finally came under one roof. And the band at that point, you know, kind of did a deal with the label that moving forward, they would have involvement and benefit from any projects they did. So the band really couldn't and Rhino wouldn't do anything without the band being involved directly. Now, does that mean that that Paul and Tommy sit and go over the mixes as we're doing them? No. I mean, they did. They were more involved, let's say, early on. But I think we've proven that, you know, we we know what we're doing with this stuff. Uh, and and so, yeah, I consult with obviously with them, with management directly on all this stuff. You know, no, none of it could be OK, particularly putting out like unreleased stuff uh, without the band's, you know, approval and understanding. Yeah. And I talk to Tommy pretty regularly. Paul's obviously a little bit more removed from stuff and retired. But I talked to his manager, you know, multiple times a week. So they uh, so, yeah, no, it's a, I mean, like I say, the, the, none of this stuff would would be worth doing without their want or, or would get done if they didn't want it. You know, so. So, yeah, no, they're 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 involved but like you know th that's part of the reason why there wasn't you know after 2008 there was a 10 years where there was no replacement stuff and basically it's been two, two before this reissue series there was two efforts to do any kind of anthology archival stuff in 97 michael hill who was their longtime a r guy he did a he did a best of that all for nothing nothing for all and paul was involved in that and then uh and then it was another 10-year gap between 2008 when peter jefferson did the first album reissues slightly expanded uh for rhino and another 10 years passed until we started this 
the replacements are not sentimental look back guys, you know, they never were. And so, and they're not like interested in going over the minutia of this stuff. And so fortunately myself and Jason Jones, who does an art Rhino and is my partner in all this, it's like, we've been kind of handed the keys to kind of come up with these ideas and follow through with them and sort of create these projects based on what the band wants and, and what, you know, kind of makes sense for the catalog. And, and, you know, we've had success. We've won Grammys. We've gotten, you know, album of the years and all the end of the year lists and, and, and they've all sold, you know, incredibly well for, for, what they are uh so so yeah so i mean it's kind of like the thing of like yes the band is involved but does that mean that paul's going to be you know obsessing over a a mix from 40 years ago that he wants to read no not exactly you know and we were lucky with dead man's pop obviously matt wallace who paul worked with numerous times over the years and who installed paul's home studio and produced his first solo record and all this stuff they were very close so with that one you know matt was really involved directly with the guys and getting their input and all that stuff on the mix and you know so so yeah so the short answer is yes they're involved we couldn't and wouldn't do anything without their involvement approval and and okay but um as we've gone along and we've sort of proven ourselves you know the band has been really cool about letting us dig into the archive and letting people hear stuff that you know maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago they wouldn't want people to hear so you know it's all kudos to them uh having been uh you know really open about revisiting the stuff and letting us get it out into the world yeah man and and there's something to be said i mean obviously i think that they uh they feel like they can trust these songs in you all's hands, but also there's something to be said about, um, you know, not every record should or will necessarily sound better if the band mixes it. By the time that you right. get to the mixing point, sometimes those ears are so fried and then you add yeah. 40 years and it's already been out in yeah. one capacity. Yeah. It's, hard, it's well, really and, harder for them to hear it in a, in, in a different way or, you know, some yeah. of those judgments might be better suited for somebody with like Ed who has, yeah. hasn't been mulling it over for 40 years well and, you know? and, and the truth is the reason one of the reasons we, we chose Ed to be involved and really he was the only person we considered very seriously was um you know initially he was way back in 85 he was he was kind of supposed to do the record with tommy and then for various reasons they wanted to keep him in minneapolis ed was living in california at the time also you know they were comfortable with steve felstead who was their engineer they wanted to, the label wanted to keep the band comfortable and keep them at home that's why they recorded in minneapolis why they work with an engineer they knew and tommy came in under different circumstances under most circumstances ed would have been uh working on that record and and you know maybe would have come out sounding different but ed was the guy that i think after a while paul and tommy sort of jokingly said oh well maybe we should have got ed stasium so here it is 38 years later we got ed stasium for him and he's now mixing the record um and ed you know in addition to being just great stuff with ramones and knowing tommy ramones work does has done the talking heads has done recorded and mixed one of paul's favorite songs which is gladys night in the pips midnight train in georgia so ed was the guy uh you know for for a variety of reasons both kind of historical personal and technical where it made the most sense to get him to do this really kind of the only person who made sense and with and same with don't tell a soul it's like you know the whole idea with that was let mac the guy who had produced the record let him mix it and with in this case it was ed the guy who probably should have mixed the record mixing it so it's never like you know i i resist the idea of like remixes where you just send it off to some some third party who's famous you know as a famous mixer or some big mixer you know tony visconti or somebody who could mix this record it's like well what is his connection to the band and what is his connection to the record and all these and all this stuff that we've done which is really just the two records that we've had uh, done remixes of with dead man's pop and tim let it Bleed. we've gone to people who were very close to the project you know in one way or another and who or were or were directly involved that's the only way i think you know it, it makes sense to do something like this and really keep it true and pure to the essence of what the record should have been absolutely man and uh i know you you're keeping it close to the chest but that project that you're saying is uh you know bio that you're working on 
from a band that's highly inspired by the replacements it, it's just it's always surprising or maybe not surprising but uh you know exciting to hear just how far that reach is um you know uh we we spoke to Bob and saying that it's from pavement recently and you know mm. for some reason it didn't click with me until I heard multiple members of that band championing uh their love mm. for the replacements I was like oh yeah of course so that that adds up you know but like it just you just it seems like such a different era but it's really you know basically yeah. 10 years later um not even later if you consider you know the tail end of the replacements with 10 years yeah there was some formation there was some interview with there was some interview with malkovich where he was a malkovich that's where he was talking about uh, my book and uh and i think talking about how bob you know would take him to shows or whatever it was you know uh so it's kind of interesting that that yeah i mean they're totally in that wheelhouse that that's probably a probably was a big influence on them in 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 a weird way though you wouldn't normally or automatically think that yeah well it's it's I would almost say that there's more bands that remind me of the replacements from that era than from the replacements era uh in some right, regards right. you yeah. know and they were certainly ahead of the um their peers and some in some uh stylistic and genre choices and even uh i mean aesthetically i would argue you know they were yeah they were flag guys around i guess you know the minutemen and all of them were already big flying right. the flannel people but uh <laughs> it certainly wasn't popular trend at the time you know well, I think their influence continues. I think that's that's part of the thing again. With um, it's not the reason, but certainly another another element to these remixes that we've done is to make the records sound a little closer to what the band's intention was and sound more timeless and less dated. Is I find, and we found, and we see the num- you can see the numbers and kind of like Spotify and the streaming stuff. It's like they're constantly being discovered by younger kids, you know, 15, 20, 20 to twenty four, and so the replacements audience kind of regenerates itself you know it's like it, it continues to grow and expand and just get younger and newer and and there are constantly more people coming to the band so i think it's a good thing when those people can come to those new fans and and younger listeners can come to a, a catalog or to a record that doesn't sound like sort of a fix to a particular era it's like man this could have been made yesterday um which is what most of i think their records sound like and now we've gotten the other two that maybe didn't sound that way to to kind of fit into that and uh and 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 sort of be truer to what the band was sounded like at the time so you know that's part of that's the other be- benefit of, of this whole reissue series is like we you know we just see it people who are buying this stuff yeah there's definitely the 40 plus 50 plus even 60 plus replacements fans but there's a lot of 20 year old replacements fans or 20 somethings who are, are discovering the band and discovering these albums you know kind of in real time right now yeah man and you know the replacements uh i feel like in the spirit of the band always you know despite their there's just there's incredible accolades that they've had even in their time you know like when they were sharing a bill with a uh, you know the heartbreakers or whether it was you know the keith richards uh opening slot and these things that are just like undeniable milestones for a band or like we were discussing earlier the tommy ramone alex shilton things but yet they never seem to be um there's just the the diy ethos never really completely faded there was always like some there was always this backbone of um just something a little bit this that's authenticity that never seemed to get completely molded by their success and even to this day you know i i, I booked tommy twice to play here in south carolina where he played shows that they said there's going to be a 40 cap no we don't want to sell more than 40 tickets and we want it to feel like they're hanging out in a living room and watching me play an acoustic guitar and the fact that he could easily sell twice as many as that or what 
you know, more way more than that. Uh, you know, there's just this. There doesn't seem like there's a. It seems like they they still have a. You know, I'm sure aspects of them probably feel jaded as anybody does when they're playing music for this long. But there's still a little bit of a love for. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, they're, they're they're you know Paul in Paul's case because of his publishing, he's been successfully doing that. You know, he's never had a job in his life other than his janitor job when he was 18 or working at the Munsingware factory or whatever it was. Um, you know, in, in Tommy's case, same thing. You know, they managed to make a living. They were gotten nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're you know they they have continued to become they continue to be relevant and be discovered by a new generation of fans. They're getting deluxe box set treatments from Warner brothers. You know what I mean? Like in terms of success. Yeah. There were, there were bands that were had hits and sold a lot more records in the eighties that nobody knows about, thinks about, or gives a shit about anymore. And the replacements, that's not the case. People care about them maybe more now than they ever did and respect them more now than they ever did. So, I mean, that's a kind of success. It's like a, you know, it wasn't uh, in the replacements case, this whole thing, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a sprint, it was a marathon and, you know, they're winning in the end here. So, uh, so yeah, so I think it's easy for, you know, they created something that a, a, a one hit wonder in 1985 or 86 or 87 wouldn't have really given them the same sort of longevity and value and credibility in people's eyes. And so, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm sure that for them, that's, that's that was hard to accept at the time but i think now they've they accepted especially after the reunion when they saw you know the numbers of people coming out and all the love they were getting it's like yeah well, we did something important and and we've succeeded and 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 you know it continues on in in sort of archival form here with the stuff we've done so i think uh, you know they have every right to, to to feel good about it you know at this point absolutely man and you know I, I wouldn't judge them in the least bit if they didn't want to pick up a guitar at all but you know tommy is still being incredibly creative and Though I know Paul like uh, is you know a little probably a little more resistant to you know being on the road and that kind of thing, but you know he's releasing these uh, you know kind of DIY releases that he's yeah he put out a bunch of those even yeah like the uh, what's it the dry wood or yeah dry wood garage I mean he's he's slowed down because I think but there's still so much they could put out but yeah I mean he's he's basically retired and he's pursuing you know other things that he wants to do painting or whatever but yeah and Tommy obviously came to sort of being a songwriter and a frontman later and so he's just still continuing to evolve and get better at what he does I mean his, his latest album is probably the best thing he's done I think you know right alongside the first passion pop record and it's like um, you know, that's, a, that's always a good sign too, when you're getting better at what you do. And so, uh, so yeah, so I think there's, you know, it's, 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 it's all good as far as, as far as the, everybody's doing kind of what they want and the replacement thing kind of keeps going in, in its own way. That's true, man. And I, I would say a lot of this solo material and bash and pop, et cetera, like I would love to see, um, you know, some kind of expanded versions of that stuff down the road, like 14 songs, I think is incredible as well as, yeah. I mean, you, that's just one of many many solo releases that i'm uh that i've appreciated but you know uh i feel like the if you once you get into the the these not even just the band but these individual artists that make up this band there is so much to appreciate beyond oh, yeah. even the, the if you only had the years of the replacements it'd be plenty but there's there's just like i said it's a yeah. gift that keeps on giving in terms of yeah, that. all of slim all of slim's stuff is great and chris mars is back doing music he just released a kind of absolutely on, on his own through his own website so yeah so i mean like i say they're 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 you know creative people musical people people who are artists like the all four of those guys and the replacements uh, were and are uh you know keep keep making music or there's always stuff to discover so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a story that i think will go on for a while so absolutely man and uh one thing that we uh haven't discussed too much but I, I hope that um slim is doing well and that he's um you know 
yeah, written yeah, some of the said, rewards of this as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's, he's doing well. You know, obviously he had the health stuff and his he's but he has just an incredible wife and family that take great care of him. And they just uh they just moved to they had a actually a state sale because they moved to a new place. They've been in a house for many years. So yeah, so they're doing great and and, and doing well and hanging in there and 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 yeah, so but yeah, Slim's a great guy and was a really big part of of the band and the band continuing on, I think, uh, into 87, 88, 89 and those latter years. And so uh, you know, he's 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 always a big part of the story too. Well, uh, one last thing that, uh, that I'm curious about uh, that I think would just be for posterity alone, which I know you said that the guys are far from sentimentalists, but uh, I think uh, if there are any board recordings of that Grant Park show, that would be, you know, the final one. Well, the, there's actually, yeah, no, there's actually, that was a, that was a show that was recorded for broadcast. And I think there's kind of a quasi bootleg of it out. It's also filmed. So there's a, there's a multi-camera shoot of that. So, you know, there's, there's still stuff in the can, uh, how viable all that is to release. I don't know. You know, it's like, I always say, as I've said with each of these, it's like, we got to sell the, the, the current one before we can get to the next right. one. You know what I mean? So, but, uh, but yeah, no, there's still, there's still good, good stuff. Uh, you know, we've certainly chosen the first four or five projects we've done here. We've chosen kind of the, the cream of the crop, but that doesn't mean to say there isn't more. And so hopefully if this one does well again and there's interest, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to dig deeper, go to another period of, of the band's history and uh, do something different. So I'm, I'm hopeful, fingers crossed that people, you know, like the Tim, let it bleed release and, and buy it enough to where we can kind of kind of have a justification to do another one. Absolutely. Well, Bob, I, I plan to keep following your career, man. And uh, whether it be replacements or completely unrelated to replacements, I'd love to find a reason to chat with you again someday, man. Sure. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, and yeah, I mean, if uh, if anybody wants to know more, uh, you know, they can go to bobmayer.com or replacementsbook.com and certainly just go to Rhino uh, for, for any information about the Tim box set and let it bleed. Perfect, man. Well, thanks again and hope to talk to you soon. Okay, take care, man. Thank you. See you, Bob.